This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Stefano. You've always got a new sort of name for me every time we chat. How, how do you Jamie, do I've, I've been listening to uh, Rogan again. So, oh. Uh, not, I, well, I listen to Rogan all the time, but I, I had a road trip and I, I listening, listening, listening. And I, so we're, I'm going to call you Jamie instead, actually. So. Oh, God. At least it's not the audio guy. Right? Right, Carruthers? <laughs> right? Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> so episode 97 already, man. Um, we're running up to 100. And this is a really cool one. We just... Had a great guest on with uh, Ryan Callahan, old Cal. That was awesome. And uh, this is a a great chat. We sit down with Ben O'Brien from Woodside. Um, Ben is – I've listened to Ben for a long time through the Hunting Collective. And uh, I just really – such a deep, you know, understanding and perspective about uh, our our space and just looking at things a little differently than – you know, I normally do. It's always when I talk to Ben or listen to Ben, I always learn something new and think it, think a little bit differently about um, you know just hunting in general. It's always pretty cool listening to him. Yeah, this is another one that I set up that I didn't get a chance to hang out on because I was away. But Ben is one of the ones that uh, actually inspired me to start listening to podcasting and look into to, to hosting, and that's. To be blunt, one of the reasons we started this podcast was the Hunting Collective. Ben, I've, I've had a chance to sit down and interview him before and chat on the phone with him before, so I I have an idea where this 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 pod was going to go. And when I was putting it together and editing it, it was just like, yep, that's that's Ben. He will lay it out straight. And uh, a, a cool fun fact is Rogan when he was up in the Quinell area with our buddy Mike for his, his first moose hunt, Ben was there on that hunt. Uh, ben was the, the one that took the picture for Peterson's magazine. And so, yeah, yeah. Ben's got a, a hell of a background in, in the hunting world itself. Yeah. Interesting. I just listened to, uh, I just mentioned, I was listening to Rogan and they had Ben on and that was the one I just listened to last, uh, was road tripping yesterday. And, uh, it was pretty interesting listening to that. And, him and Rogan were were sipping on whiskey and and chatting hunting and and it got interesting. But he you know he really dives into some really important stuff. Uh, the North American Wildlife Conservation Model or Model of Conservation talks about uh, the Pittman Robertson Act and uh, yeah, it's good listen, pretty cool um, and and enjoyed it. But uh, they were just freewheeling the two of them. They, they they were a few whiskeys deep and and had some pretty interesting conversations. So uh, not not in the uh, I guess in the business of sending you to other people's podcasts, but uh, yeah, that's definitely one worth listening. And anyway, it's always fun to connect with Ben, uh, interesting dude, and, and always just a really, really cool perspective on hunting. So that uh, yeah, was definitely a, a fun podcast, and I think you can enjoy the listen. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely need to to check out that one. Uh, I can only imagine those two into the whiskeys, how it's going to kind of go off into the weeds. That'd be one one hell of a hunting camp. I'd like to sit at. Well, Rogan just sat there and laughed the whole time at Ben, and and Ben was trying to. Ben was laughing, but they talked about hunting in Quinell with Hawkridge and mm-hmm. and uh, that coming up on that trip, and uh, I think that was that. No, that I, I would. I was confused there. I was thinking that that was um, uh, Rogan's first hunt, but it wasn't no, his it was, first hunt. It was, it was with Ranella. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He was he re- shot a mule deer with. Rogan, that's right. I think on his first hunt. So. Yeah, and I, I believe yeah. Cal was there for that. 
He was, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they said that they were in camp and, and they talked about getting hammered on that trip too. <laughs> um, that, yeah, pretty pretty funny conversation. Um, so before we head off to episode 97, um, just want to let our listeners know that if you're thinking about getting some tickets on our Big Boar Rifle Raffle, uh, we're holding a sheep summit in BC, uh, Prince George in a couple weeks. And so you only have, we're going to draw that, I think, um, middle of November. It's at November 20th, 17th. Somewhere in there. It's in the week of the 17th, somewhere in there. Yeah. It's either the, I think we draw either the night of the 17th, I think November 17th or the 18th. 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 Yeah. So you only got uh, three weeks left. Um, and as always, our Big Boar series, uh, courtesy of Don Lynham and uh, Gary Flack, they, they always sell out. And this one's on track to do that too. So. Uh, last chance to get some tickets there. Um, on the merchandise front, um, Stephen, uh, let's talk about that. We've got some really cool stuff. You got some new stuff coming in. We got uh, some winter toques coming that they're mm-hmm. not up on the website, but they'll be imminently, I believe. Yep. And uh, just a reminder for our listeners: if you want some merch, um, we always offer free shipping, and uh, so buy 125 bucks worth of stuff, and we'll ship you uh, on us. So great way to to discount your purchase uh, and beat the uh, beat the shipping on that. So 125 bucks worth of stuff, and that doesn't take a couple hoodies, a couple hats, and and you're there. And um, yeah, and Christmas. You just said oh. it's less. It's two months away. Two That's months away. Insane. It's less than two months by the time we release this on Wednesday. Like it's the 24th right now and like, holy crap, where the hell did the time go? And that's crazy. Yeah. We're going to get busy again for, for this Christmas. So have a look at the website. The toques should be up this week. If they're not up today, Wednesday, uh, they'll, they'll be up this week. Uh, the, the, the women's toques that sold out so fast last year, we had a real limited run. We've, uh, we've heard you, we've listened, we're bringing them back, but in some more colors this time. So, uh, yeah, we do have some some pretty cool ladies stuff on there. We got ladies hats, ladies toques, uh, ladies shirts. So looking for uh, the the sheep girl in your life or the aspiring sheep girl? Hey, check it out. Uh, we got some great men's stuff as well: water bottles, ramblers, hats, leather patch hats. The new calendar is kicking some major ass. Which, yeah, which- I was gonna ask you about that. So the calendar that's uh, Greg Rensmeg. He's our secretary, and he puts together a calendar every year. Um, these things are beautiful. I have mine sitting by my desk. I'm looking at it right now. And uh, it's got important dates on there. It's got, uh, but more importantly, it's got some insane photography from our, you know, people in our world. Um, and uh, so pick those up. They're cheap like borscht and uh, just grab one and uh, yeah, they're, grab a couple, give them to your friends. I love them. And uh, I, I definitely stare at that every day. Pretty cool. Yeah, they're great. Uh, the photography as expected is, is out of this world. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a great, great piece to, as Kyle said, to stare at. So throw that into your order as well. Awesome. With that, we're off to episode 97 and we get to sit down with, uh, Woodside's Ben O'Brien. Enjoy the listen. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. 
Well, good morning, I guess afternoon from uh, sunny Montana. Ben, thanks for coming on the show. S- super stoked yeah, to have you on, man. It is sunny, uh, which, you know, th- these days we're kind of counting down the days till it gets snowy. So we're uh, we're enjoying. I just got off two days of bird hunting and my legs are sore and I'm a bit sunburned, which is a good thing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, yeah, how does that work? We're doing a podcast October 6th. I guess it's really ramping up late October and November is always a, a busy month for for the field for you, I guess, eh? Yeah, you try to keep it consistent if you're lucky enough. Yeah, September is the big the big month here. It's the Super Bowl for elk. and, and so that our, But our elk season goes a couple more weeks. Uh, so hopefully I'll get to go back out and do some more. But um, I have, yeah, I have an antelope hunt coming up. Antelope season opens on Saturday. So, yeah, some, a couple of days here. And so got a couple of pronghorn tags to go fill. Going to go out with my dad and my son. Um and chase pronghorn and then yeah rolls that rolls right into mule deer uh which rolls right into the general elk season and then uh usually rolls into december we try to get after some ducks here or there and before you know it the year's over <laughs> yeah, there's always something to do yeah awesome sounds uh sounds like a pretty busy fall for you and uh do you got anything going on this winter are you going anywhere just slipping away to hawaii or anything like that and uh i know you've been down there a few times so yeah this will be the first year in a long time that i haven't first year in five that i haven't been to hawaii to hunt um i hadn't thought about that (laughs) that's a a bummer but no you know this year i really am like i'm happy to stay around montana wyoming and idaho um that's really why i moved here i used to you know in my younger days i'd travel around quite a bit to hunt all over the place uh every year but these days i got two little kids and you know millions of acres of public land at my fingertips here locally so i'm i'm quite content to to try to to have the goal to fill all my Montana tags, which is which is uh, one I did last year, but uh, hope to repeat it this year. Yeah, right on. Uh, how old's your son? He's pretty young. He's not hunting. He's just going along for the ride, right? Yeah, I got a two year old son, and then my older son is is turning six today. It's his birthday today. Um, awesome. And so, yeah, we're we're just going to take him along. Um, this will be the first time though that he's going along on on and probably watched a big game animal uh, get killed. So we. We did have a discussion about that last night where I just asked him, like, hey, you know, he's an expert pheasant and grouse plucker. Uh, he's, he helps me butcher every animal I bring home. And uh, so he knows, he understands the process. We read elk hunting books all the time. Like, he, he, he knows um, the process. But this would be the first time he'll have to, you know, see an animal's guts and see all of those things. So we talked about it last night a little bit about, you know, what are you expecting and, and um, are you okay with, you know, seeing a, a, a dead antelope and, um, he was like, yeah, of course I am. Of course we're going to eat it. Right. I was like, yeah, I was like, oh, of course I am. I can't wait. So hmm. we'll see. Uh, I remember being, being a young man, being a little weirded out by the first, first gut pile I got to see. So we'll see how it goes, but it'll be, it'll be an awesome, you know, three generations of O'Briens out there running around Wyoming. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, you know, it's interesting you know, with my son, he's, he's a little older now, he's grown up, but, uh, the first time I took him out, I harvested a doe and, uh, he, I didn't have that talk. So that, you know, that's, that's good knowledge. My young, my older son, I'm not sure if I had the talk or not, but he's into it. He loves to hunt. But because of that experience, my, my youngest, he didn't, it didn't resonate well. And he's, you know, and that was the thing is, you know, he never, ever, he still hasn't hunted to this day. Loves, loves to shoot. Doesn't mind going along, but he doesn't want anything to do with anything to do with dead things. And, uh, yeah. so I maybe dropped the ball on that, to be honest with you. So, 
I don't know. I mean, I, you know, my dad, uh, was a one, was a great father to me and my brother. My brother's a year and a half older than me roughly. And he doesn't hunt. He's never hunted before. Um, mm. and you don't know, I, I have two sons. I, I, I could see it going that way. I don't, I really don't know. Um, you, you don't know whether it's in them and it's just something that you bring out and engender and, and help them understand. And some kids it's just not, it's not there. Uh, it, it, that's very possible. I don't know there'd be any way other than a generations long psychological study to determine what's going on there, but it's quite common that, that some kids are exposed to it. Certainly my kids will be exposed to it. They'll, they'll over index on it. I'm sure. Um, which is often a worry of mine, but you know, I, there's no way to really, to truly understand how somebody becomes a hunter and stays that way through the many obstacles that they, uh, that they'll encounter even with their, with family help and their father teaching them. Some kids go off to college and never go hunting again. You know, once they've got out of the financial and where with all their parents and, and under out front of their dad's wing, we, we lose quite a few hunters during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look back on, uh, you know, your personal life, you growing up, obviously you grew up, your dad was a hunter. How, how did that, how did you get involved? When were you starting to tag along and when did you start, when did you pull the trigger on an animal the first time? Yeah, I think, uh, the first, I was, I was probably 11 the first time that we started talking about it. Um, my dad had hunted his entire youth and into, but, but his parents, my grandparents, neither of them were hunters. So he kind of came to it on his own and started hunting small game. And, and, um, when there was a lot of, you know, where I'm from in Maryland, where there was pheasants and other upland birds, he was big, big on that, big on squirrels and different things like that. And then to his own admission, when, when he had, uh, the two of us, my brother and I, he quit hunting for a while, uh, ran his own business, had two little kids. And, and this again is another moment where hunters sometimes check out from their, you know, yearly license buying is when you have young families. Um, so he had checked out during that time. So when I was a kid, I can't remember him ever hunting as, you know, in my first 10 years of life, he probably did here and there. We had some neighbors and close friends that hunted, um, and not too many people in my family hunted. Um, but my dad really saw, I must've seen it in me. Um, I was always interested in firearms. I was interested in going to the, the muzzleloader shoots and, and being in the garage, looking at guns and knives and, you know, squirrel tails and whatever was hanging around. So I was interested in it. And so he, he fostered that pretty early on. And then I want to say I was, a, I was 11 years old the first time we went and then 12 years old the first time I got to bring a rifle and um, take part. And, and then there was, that was the age, the first age we could hunt in Maryland back then. I think it's still age. Um, so we went on a youth hunt and I was able to bring a rifle the first, the first day we ever hunted together. I think I missed three deer, maybe more, maybe four. I mean, it, was, it wasn't a, it wasn't pretty. Um, but I just remember, you know, most, most of my memories there weren't of the successes and failures. Cause I ended up, you know, being quite successful in those early years, but, um, it was just following my dad, you know, just being wherever he was, I wanted to be. And, and we shared this thing and I didn't know why, or I didn't know why I really loved to be there, but I knew, I know I wanted to be with him and, and, you know, we built this thing together that we're now, you know, many, so many years later, 20 some years later, still still doing it's kind of the reverse now i'm taking him hunting now <laughs> and uh 
And so it's a bit of the reverse, but, but we, it stuck with us. And it's something we, we talk about pretty much every time that we see each other, every time we talk. Yeah. Very cool. Um, let's maybe just, uh, drift off a little bit into your writing career. So you, you, you know, you grew up with the outdoor side of things and obviously you're predisposed to be a writer. You're so bloody good at it. You don't just learn that, but did you go to college for that? And then let's, let's talk about that transition to the NRA and then where you kind of ended up, you know, with, yeah. with everything that you do. Sure. Yeah. Um, man, it seems like the story keeps getting longer every time I tell it anyway, but yeah, I, 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 I don't know when I, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I would say there were a couple of personality traits that I still have some good, some bad, but I never was really good uh, with authority I, in school and with my parents, my poor parents, I just was not, uh, I was always pretty laid back, but when it came to like structured authority systems, I was just never good. I was always talking back to the vice principal or having a debate with the principal about some kind of policy that the school had in, even in middle school and into high school. Um, I, I don't know that the, the administrators, the schools I went to liked me all that much, but you know, I think that translated in some ways to wanting to be a journalist, uh, to wanting to, because journalism, you know, in the old Woodward Bernstein model of journalism, which isn't really around today, journalists were regular folks that were, and their job was to, you know, to poke at power systems, poke at the powerful, to, to speak truth to power. You know, that was kind of the archetype that I always, I always liked. I always understood. Um, so I always wanted to be a journalist. And I remember when I was just, you know, maybe eight or nine years old, I wrote, there was a, a school in Canada for outdoor writers. Uh, I can't quite, I wish I could remember. It doesn't exist anymore because I looked around, but there was a school for outdoor writers and I wrote something about, about deer and sent it to, to the guy who ran this school. And he was nice enough to email me back and say, don't be so poetic. I was trying to be overly poetic. Don't be so poetic. Write what you know, write what you see, you know, just be true, be honest. And that was something that I, that stuck with me. And, you know, I, I went to school to be a journalist. Uh, I wanted to be a, a newspaper writer, a sports writer, some, some kind of person kind of immersed in, in information and translating information. And so that's, that's, what, uh, that's what I did early in my career. Uh, I reported on sports. I was covering NFL teams, MLB teams uh, in my early 20s. And I realized that uh, I didn't really get to do anything. I was mostly just writing about uh, what rich, famous baseball players did and getting a lot of the negative uh, that they got long hours, weekends, almost never home with none of the pay or the praise. So on a personal level, even though I was very passionate about writing and, and that world, I just didn't, I just didn't want to lose my passion for sports or the thing that I grew up loving. And so, uh, I, I met a buddy at a bar and we were chatting about this problem. And he said, well, I work for the national rifle association and, uh, there's this magazine called American Hunter. And he started showing me these pictures that he'd just gotten back from Africa. He was just had a, on a gator hunt. He was just, out west chasing elk and, and i was like well how much do those things cost and he said no they pay for it <laughs> like that's part of my job to go and do these things and i just couldn't believe it i couldn't believe that that was that was a job i had read magazines and i had done all these things and to this point i just hadn't considered that you could do that for a job unless you were one of the five people that i knew that actually did it 
And so I immediately, he was leaving his job. So I immediately applied for his job and didn't get it. Um, but uh, not too long later on, you know, the National Rifle Station was hiring a digital editor when they were first building websites back in the days before Twitter or right around when Twitter was getting going. And um, I applied and, and uh, got the job. And, and I distinctly remember the first time they said, like, hey, we have an antelope hunt in Wyoming. We'd like you to go and report on your experience. And here's here's all the details. And I was just floored that this was something that I could go and do. Um, I was just looking for experiences at that point. And so it wasn't long in that job when I realized this is the thing I'm going to do forever. But whatever form it takes, whatever, however it twists and turns, and it certainly has twisted and turns over the the ensuing you know twelve or thirteen years. Um, I'm going to stay in this forever because I already loved hunting. I love the outdoors, and being able to do those things and write about them and combine all those things together just solidified you know that that this is a position that I want to hold. Uh, I want to tell these stories, and then over the years it really just kind of morphed into a deep appreciation for things like public lands and our system of conservation in this country, our system of conservation funding. And then, you know, continued to morph into like becoming an evangelist for hunting and, and those structures as I learned about them over the, you know, over the years. And I grew up in hunting. I was 22 when I got into the industry. I'm 36 now. Uh, so I made, I really grew, you know, I became uh who I am today because of the industry and the community and the pursuits and all of those things. So it just kind of over the years, as I worked for different brands and different media outlets, kind of morphed into this pure passion that kind of tracks my daily life. And, and I evangelize whenever I can. Right on. Well, that's a really cool world evangelize. Um, so let's, let's, I guess, go on that vein for a little bit. So, you know, we're seeing, you know, and I, I've listened to Hunt in Common for literally years, and uh, you know, I always find your content so insightful. But you know, that's one of the things in BC here. We've got a, a platform we call One Campfire, which is you know, yeah. basically uh, normalizing hunting. And BC is you know, California esque, uh, you know, really, really uh, divided, and and a lot of people in urban environments, and and not a lot of appreciation for outdoor spaces and certainly hunting that's for sure um you know you're living in the mecca there in montana and my hat's off to you man but you know how do we do do a better job and i know you talk about this but you know what's some advice you could give us for one campfire and for you know british columbia on how we can normalize things and do a better job of telling our story and and how we can kind of change a shifting tide and um do a better job i guess yeah yeah there's there's so many things um so many answers to that question but I always try to like take the 10,000 foot view, take a step back for a minute and ask myself, what is the question that the greater society or in your, in your case, like provincial from a provincial aspect, the province of BC, what are the most people that don't understand hunting? What are they asking you? What do they want of you? What do they want you to prove to them? Or what do they want to know from you to make them comfortable with something that that isn't innately comfortable to them anymore. You know, it's not something that, that they're way more comfortable with kind of the, the proxy of the grocery store, the proxy of, of however they eat and however they see the world. And I think they're asking in general, they want to know first before that we get to any of the personal things that I think are really 
uh, important about hunting. They want to know first, is hunting good for society? Because I think it's, it's very easy to distill down the anti-hunting argument. It's very easy for some to understand it. Um, and that's to our detriment. There's a lot more complexity to the hunting argument in modern in the modern space. There's a lot more to unpack. Uh, if you were just to make a banner, it would be hard to say to unpack some of these, you know, some of the oxymoronic notions about loving animals and still killing them and consuming them and all those things. It's harder to unpack that than it is to just say, if you shoot something, you cause this death. So we're against that. You know, that's way easier to understand just from a human psychological standpoint. But the question I think that you need that, that those folks are just asking you just basically is hunting good for society? Is there, is there something in it that's good on a personal level for you, but also on a broad level for our world? Is there some kind of structure I'm not aware of that can convince me that it's, this is a good thing? And then talk to me about both the broad motivations of hunters, but then your specific personal motivation and what has happened in your life. And that's a lot. That's a long conversation. You know, it, that doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't happen on the bar stool. I mean, it, do, it just doesn't. Um, but the way I like to answer it is like on a personal level, present me a problem that you have in your life. Now, you know, a lot of these are modern problems. Present me a modern issue you have, and I bet you I can I can help you solve it through hunting. And I know that sounds a little far fetched for a lot of people. And it sounds like I'm pushing this thing a little bit too, you know, too hard. Like I'm, I'm a salesman for hunting. But if you start to think about the broader societal issues, I'm sure that are, are, are I don't live in BC, but we're not that far away. So I'm sure that the, these things are similar. If you look at the modern issues with mental health, the people have issues with like overabundance of technology, screen time, yeah, they have issues with needing to feel powerful, needing to have some control, needing to reconnect to their family, needing to, to have real relationships with the world around them and with nature. Um, they need skills and crafts to hone over a long period of time. They need traditions, cultural traditions to be a part of. Um, they need to be connected to their food. They need to be connected to their physical health. Um, and have a reason beyond just going to the gym to be physically healthy. You know, they need to be uncomfortable in a world that kind of promotes comfort as a solution. And so when you talk to somebody just on a personal level, you can say, look, tell me, tell me what's bothering you. Tell me what you would like to conquer in your own life. And I bet you that we, through the right approach to hunting, I bet you you're going to see some benefits. I'm not saying it's a panacea. I'm just saying I've seen this hundreds of times through my life, how this has changed other people. So that's the first one. That's kind of a personal approach that you can take. On the broad approach, there's, there's real constructs within our model of conservation, our system of conservation funding, some of the things that happen in, 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 the, in the states and in, on our continent that are very easy to argue um, or easy to point out. You know, the structures that are kind of just infallible. You can tell a story of um, our, uh, our system of conservation funding that relies on license fees and excise taxes. You can talk to them about the user pays public benefits scenario where our conservation model is built on this idea of this interwoven value system where we pay into the resource and therefore public benefits from our constituency 
from the things that we do. License fees is one of them, of course. But we also have Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson that are excise tax on the manufactured uh, goods that we buy, archery equipment, guns, ammo. That all goes into a coffer and then gets distributed to the state um, to help manage this wildlife. We can, you can talk to them about all, like that concept in its own is very powerful. You can talk to them about the public trust doctrine, which talks about the democracy of wildlife uh, in North America and in the state. You can say, look, the public owns this wildlife and the state hold it in trust and manage it in trust for the public. This, this country, America, was started because of the idea of we didn't like aristocracy. We didn't like top-down classes. And we come from a lineage of aristocratic hunters. Hunting in England before the United States was formed was a very aristocratic act. It was for a, a certain few to take part in. We have we have freed that up here and made a democracy of hunting and the public trust is a big part of that. So I could go on for hours and hours about this, but you can take it at a personal level and talk to them about their own lives. And then you can talk to them about the enlightenment of the, of the early 1900s, how we extirpated wildlife, how we brought them back from the brink and the structures that were put in place to keep wildlife thriving from that moment to this moment and kind of our generational responsibility to continue that march forward uh, on behalf of wildlife and wild places. So there's a, there's just a myriad of things that you could, if you get somebody to sit down and listen, you can really make that argument. Now, the other thing to say, there's a ton of things on the fringes. Predator hunting tends to always like live on the fringe of this conversation. Uh, people tend to really accept hunting for food. They tend to not accept hunting uh, for management or control, you know, those things are, are competing ideas. So there are fringe things. Trophy hunting is also one of the things that lives on the fringe of these very beneficial things. Um, and so I always try to be open and honest about the complexity of, of the trophy hunting and predator management and be able to say, yeah, I get it. I get why you don't like that, but let's talk about it on a, in a broader sense and be honest that our system of wildlife is not perfect. It, it, certainly in the modern sense has run up with some societal roadblocks in the, in the two uh, ideas that I mentioned. But overall, it is a good thing for society. It is a good thing for me personally and all the people around me. And, and that's why that's what makes it easy to support. Um, but again, it's, it's, a, it's a long conversation and it, it is not, it really can't be had in holistically in bite-sized snippets and, and uh, news articles. Yeah, well, really well said, Ben. And, you know, here, here's one that I, I found really challenging. You know, I, I'm pretty intentional about my conversation about defending hunting and our system. Um, and, you know, I, I listen to our leaders like yourself, of, of, you know, these arguments that we make. But one thing that got me recently, and back in 2017 in BC, we shut down the grizzly hunt, as you recall here. Mm-hmm. And my buddy said to me, he's, he's, he's a non-hunter, but supports what we do. And we've had some very deep conversations about why I do what I do, and he supports it. But he said, Kyle, give me the two-minute version that you tell some mom sitting at home watching TV why we should hunt grizzly bears. And I'm like, ugh. I'm like, you can't have that conversation in two minutes, buddy. <laughs> and he's like, that's all you got. And I'm like, you know, and, and I think that's where, 
you know, it's easy to say I'm against that because it's a beautiful animal. You shouldn't kill it. Um, yeah, okay. And, yeah. and what do we say? Well, no, we should be able to kill it. And we, we just don't have a 30-second soundbite that justifies that or is ever going to convince anyone to normalize that, right? And so it's a yeah. tough job, yeah. isn't it? It's a tough job. I mean, that's why I've been focusing lately. I'm working on kind of a series uh, called Predator and Popul- Predators and Populism. And it's exactly what you're saying. Because if you break down what we're talking about, that same person isn't going to come to you and say, you know, you eating meat, you killing that mountain goat to eat its flesh. I'm, I'm so opposed to that. There's very few people. There's, there's kind of the sect of anti-hunters and, and people that, that will disagree with that, of course. But hunting for meat, hunting for sustainability, hunting for food is something that most people agree with on a broad level. Hunting for predator control is just, it's just not, um, it just certainly is not, but uh, it is. It is still baked into our system. Grizzly, you know, grizzly hunting, wolf hunting, mountain lions, whatever it might be, is still baked into that broader system that I mentioned. It's still, it's still a part of how we hold and trust this wildlife, and how we manage for stable, stable populations, and it's. When you start thinking about sustainability in that concept, you can start to then introduce predator hunting because you're like, look, there's two concepts that I like to go back to. One came from Dr. Valerius Geis uh, in one of the podcasts I did with him and then in, in subsequent conversations we had in private. But intelligent intervention. Like we have, we have a unique position as stewards of this landscape to intervene where we can intelligently to help provide balance, knowing that, that our existence on the landscape causes uh, quite a lot of complexities and other issues. But we have the duty to intervene in an intelligent way, and we have a model that's set up and articulated in a way that we know that has been beneficial in the past for these populations and will be again. We have an Endangered Species Act. Um, in this country, which helps to manage for that uh, extirpation, what helps to manage for a wildlife populations in peril. And we have a system of a model of conservation that uses hunting as a tool to, to achieve its population level end. And so removing hunting as a tool from that, from that greater system on behalf of, of not killing the, the grizzly bear, which, which we anthropomorphize quite often, is doing a disservice to the entire system. And so, again, to your point, that's, that's way harder to articulate than saying, I kill uh, that deer because it's delicious, and I'd rather eat what I killed than what someone else killed for me. That's way easier to explain. Um, and that's why, you know, predators, predator hunting is, is at the tip of the spear of our debates around wildlife in this country. And in California, they're told they want to ban black bear hunting. They've already banned mountain lion hunting. There's a debate in Texas around mountain lions. Colorado has an endless debate around wolves. So does uh, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which is where I live, around grizzly bears and wolves. Um, so it is. Uh, it will continue to be the battleground that where the, where these ideas are are thrown around, um, and it'll continue to be to be the place where we have to be honest and open about. Um, I, I tell people all the time, I'm not, I'm not a wolf hunter. I don't go out after grizzly bears. I, I don't have any desire to shoot a grizzly bear. 
I do have a desire to shoot them out of mine because they're delicious. Uh, but we can be, be honest about those things and, and meet people where they are and say, look, there's a system here that works and it involves hunting as a state-based management tool for all species above ESA level, right? And, and this is where we become stewards of an ecosystem. But that's not the only way that states will manage predators and, and keep populations sustainable. So it's, it's a harder one to explain and an even harder one to defend when you're like me and you just don't do it. Um, but I, I always defend it as, a, as an essential part of our system. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting, you know, the anti-hunting community, uh, kudos to them. You know, they took the low-hanging fruit. They were smart enough to go after, you know, predators. They know it's an emotive issue. They know it's a challenge. Um, and they've done that. And um, so, you know, they're pretty savvy in that regard. You know, they going after uh, deer and elk and, and other things like that. Uh, and, and that's the thing you talked about, you know, yourself, Ben, that you don't you don't hunt wolves, you don't have hunt grizzly bears. Um, you know, that was another chink in the armor in BC that we've seen is that they came after grizzly bears and there was a handful of grizzly bear hunters in British Columbia and they all made a stink and a lot of people were just like, yeah, whatever, I don't kill grizzly bears, I don't really care. And in fact, some hunters were saying, and I heard this firsthand, is that this is actually good for hunting because if we take the predator equation out of it, they're going to leave the rest alone. And I think that's a little myopic. It's like the whole gun thing, you know, they mm-hmm. they come for certain firearms. You think they're going to stop when they get there. I, I, I really think that that's a bit naive in, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, yeah, the anti-hunting community kind of, uh, yeah, they a bit, uh, they're really articulate when it comes to that stuff and very... Um, uh, organized, I guess, uh, more so than anything, right? So that's it, and it's so. Com- I mean, it's, these things are so complicated to stuff out. Uh, for example, we have you know, so in Washington State, um, and I guess I'll start by saying this is why I lean to towards our model of conservation is something I talk about a lot because it sets forth tenants. There's seven of them that helps us understand these societal benefits even when we're even when we're in a moment that seems like as you as you mentioned with grizzly bears it seems like we don't need to defend this one part of it it sets forth this idea that like we have the right model put forth that has helped us organize um and and regulate wildlife populations while still seeing them thrive you know we've seen it across the board um Hunting doesn't, you know, hunting doesn't cause it, regulated hunting is a good thing for overall health of wildlife populations. While on the anti side, they're worried about the individual animal, right? The that one animal that got killed, the one animal that the one wolf that came across the Yellowstone border and into Montana and got shot by a hunter, and his name was, you know, whatever his name was, Larry the Wolf. Like that, that is part of the gap between these two, these two things. And, you know, ultimately, if you look at black bears in Washington State here in, in America, you'll find that they just had their spring bear season shut down last year. The Wildlife Commission there was co-opted by people who don't believe in predator hunting. And yet, even though our model of conservation says science-based management, right, this is wildlife biologists and state officials who are inside of the public trust doctrine, who are acting on our behalf, this is how we manage wildlife. These are the people that we listen to and trust to do the things that we need to have done uh, for wildlife in our state. And there are examples, 
you know, think about um, turkeys, wild turkeys in the state of Tennessee and Arkansas and others. There are examples when, when that structure, the wildlife biologists in our state tell us as hunters, you need to kill less. Last year you had three tags. This year you get one. Most hunters, the way the hunting community goes, we say, okay, that's fine. Perfect. If we can have, we can kill less turkeys to ensure the future of the population, we will absolutely positively do that thing. And so our model of conservation has engendered that within the hunting community. And that's a, that's an important point to make. But the return to Washington state, you had state game and fish officials, wildlife biologists arguing with the state saying, we need to continue this hunt. And here are the myriad of reasons we need to continue. And here are why some of the studies that you're citing are invalid. And here's what we see as the population level benefit of, of upholding a spring bear hunt. The anti-hunting uh, position was that during the spring, often uh, sows and cubs are present and hunters are going to be shooting sows and orphaning cubs. And there's, there's a bunch of arguments there. Um, but the state who we entrust through our model was saying, look, we studied this. We have all the numbers. We follow this closely every year. Hunters are essentially citizen scientists. They go in and they report all the, they report the kills to us, and we do all the study and data collection we do. We need it for that reason, but we also know on a population level, this hunt has been positive for us. We need it as a part of a multi-pronged approach to manage black bears in our state. Um, and they lost. They, they lost to their own wildlife commission. And so it is who knows if this spring they'll re reinstate the spring bear season. Hard to say. Um, but those those um, instances will continue. And you live inside of one of those instances that happened before this one. Um, there was also a similar situation in New Jersey with bears. With Governor Phil Murphy, who banned bear hunting on state lands only. Um, there's been a, successive, you know, a succession of bills in California to ban bear hunting. And so... Like I said earlier, I mean, I just, this is just the battleground um, that we're going to be fighting. And, and that's why the, our model of conservation and understanding it um, and falling back on it and, and letting our, our state wildlife scientists and biologists do what they do um, is very, very important. Well, and that brings up an interesting point that you raise that. So we talk about the seven tenets of the North American wildlife management model and and of course, you mentioned Dr. Geist, who is a grandfather of that, along with Shane Mahoney. So, you know, it's interesting in BC, like you said, in 17, we lost the grizzly bear hunt. And we had a premier that his campaign was based on shutting that down when he was elected. He was elected and literally within weeks, uh, there was an announcement made. There was, as far as I know, there was no real consultation with... Um, the uh, you know with with biologists with provincial biologists it was a, 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 it was a, definitely a decision based on uh, public opinion it was um, it was it was felt that it was no longer the words he used was socially acceptable and I'm hearing more and more and seeing more and more of this sort of I guess uh, transition where now you know people's um, you know ethics and beliefs are, are are entering into this so how do we sit there and continue to defend it when we have scenarios like that in Washington state or New Jersey. Um, 
how can we hold the case or hold, you know, make sure that we stick to, because that is the bedrock of what we do for sure. That truly is the bedrock of North American wildlife management and so successful. So how can we continue? Obviously we've, you know, vote all those things, but beyond that, how can we keep, keep to that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's education. That's, that's really where we are. And I think what I mentioned earlier, we have to continue to, self-police and when i say that i mean we are willing to it under our model of conservation we're willing if a state wildlife biologist or the state game agency propose to us less tag or closing a hunting season or eliminating a species uh, in, in competition with another we're willing to have that conversation and it, that's the thing that that's what's going for hunter is that we're willing to have this conversation of what's best for the wildlife resource not what makes me feel the best not what benefits me but what's best for the wildlife resource and that is where we have a, a firm leg to stand on in these conversations and i think we have a firm history to say hunting is beneficial on the broad level for these populations it is and even in the case of black bears in washington Black bears are delicious. We eat them. Um, that is a, a big thing that gets missed there because they're bears. So, so it's just education because I, I've seen recently that plenty of hunting groups, plenty of hunters are willing to be advocates for what we do. It, it, it's really impressive um, through groups like HAL.org and Blood Origins and Sportsman's Alliance. There's so I could list them a million, BHA and others. People are willing to step up and go to wildlife commission meetings, public comment periods, and speak on why this is important to them and talk intelligently about the numbers. But it's really just continuing to talk about those things and continuing to educate ourselves and others you know, about this model itself and, be, and then just be honest. Just say, this is the battleground. This is where we all have to figure out a very complex and tough equation because we know, as you said earlier, if we just remove predators from the equation, we would be fairly popular club. People would, people would probably like most of what we do. But we know because holistically we believe in this model and it works on a state basis, it is working, it has worked, and will continue to, that we have to defend this. Uh, and we have to explain it and educate around it. And, and we've done that in some states and other states that we haven't. But again, um, D.C. is a perfect example. When it's lost, it's gone. When it's lost, it's, you're not getting it back. There's, you know, we just, it's just you know, outside of some amazing occurrences, when you lose the ability to, to hunt something or to, to have it be a part of our wildlife, it generally just doesn't come back. Um, and so I'm not a proponent of the slippery slope. I think that's a fallacy, but I am a realist. And I do see uh, strategies from anti-hunters uh, and ballot box biology, which you mentioned there, just which means we've had it in the, in the states and we've had it there, which just means people voting on what they want for wildlife policy is, again, against our model of conservation. We hold and trust biologists, and wildlife science as the dictator of how we manage. And so when, when you have people uh, in cities, you know, somebody in 
let's say downtown Denver, Colorado, gets to vote whether a rancher in western Colorado has wolves on his property or not. That's not a sound way to manage wildlife. That's not a sound way to approach the impact that wildlife and, and charismatic predators have on real landscapes, real real landowners, and real people. Uh, so that's another you know, another piece that you just got to continue to educate on. This is a complex picture that we're managing through this model, and this model works. Yeah, right on. So now, you know, there's that component where the, you know, we, we educate our na- neighbors and friends and kids and, and colleagues. And, but now one of the things that I'm seeing and hearing a little bit about, uh, interesting enough, is how biologists are getting involved or, or maybe they're not down with uh, hunting at all, as, you know, as a management tool or any aspect of it. So we get these individuals in these roles and, scary part is the higher up roles or decision-making roles within a province or state, and they do not support the system. They do not support hunting. Um, you know, is that something we need to be thinking about is, you know, educating our biologists and making sure that there's, because typically pe- people were attracted to that job because they liked animals as quite often they were hunters and, yeah. and certainly pro hunting. And, and there was a, a, a healthier narrative around hunting than there is today. So thoughts on yeah. how we approach that. Yeah. It's, it's, if we were just going to be honest about this too, this is a slow creep the wrong direction. Um, and I don't know if we can stop it. <laughs> I don't know this progressive creep toward the, toward modernity is going to leave behind some things. And I've had critical conversations with lots of people about like, how long does hunting have left? There's so many countries in the world that don't have hunting at all. Um, we in North America are a bit of an outlier in a lot of ways. We are lucky in a lot of ways. Um, if we're lucky enough to fortify our model of conservation and regulated hunting, we, it will last for, for many, many, many decades into the future. But the challenge that we know we have to face is, is quite simple. is that it, it, the, the march of time is in a lot of ways marching past hunting. Now, we've seen in recent years some returns to uh more traditional activities like hunting through people just being what we talked about earlier disconnected overabundance of technology needing to return to some sort of real challenge in life the the, the ills of modern society are pushing a lot of people back to hunting we've seen this you know every year new york times seemingly trots out another field to table hipster brooklyn guy that went hunting but that is a real, you know, that, that, will, that will continue, and, uh, but that's not going to, I don't think, be enough. Um, so I did, I had spoken with some governmental agencies recently about a concern, that same concern that you raised, that one of the problems with our model of conservation is that um, the, the reality is if, if our scientists and wildlife biologists don't believe in our model and they're the stewards of that model and we are entrusting them to manage the resource on our behalf, then we're kind of screwed. <laughs> There's not a whole lot that we can do. Um, so there are some programs that are, that are starting to bubble up to educate wildlife professionals, to go into the educational process and inject more, uh, more of these ideologies or just, just more information about our model of conservation and history and continuing to talk to the folks on the biologist level about why uh, 
uh, it should continue why it's important and what their role is, which I think probably is the most important part. What is your role and what isn't your role? Um, what was what have we entrusted you with and what um, falls upon other agencies um, or the public itself? So, you know, we have a very democratic system here. I mean, we, we have public comment periods. We have um, many ways for people to get involved in these, these official decisions. Um, there's, there's wildlife commissions. There is uh, a myriad of ways that you can touch upon these debates and, and be a part of them. Um, again, that's just that's part of it. But I will say you bring up a great point because there are people very high up in our conservation world that are thinking about that, trying to figure out how at least to make sure we continually balance the scale um, between our model and then some of the, the things outside of our model that are also important in terms of wildlife management. Uh, right on. So I guess you mentioned that um, we have a bit of a call to action. What can hunters do that they care about? They want to see hunting on the landscape, yeah. you know, for the, the next, you know, for generations to come. Call to action. What can we do? How can we collectively make sure that hunting is relevant? Well, there's a couple of things that I, that are concerning to me. Um, a couple of years ago, I was writing an article about Pittman-Robertson, which is our uh, better known as the Wildlife Restoration Act, which is almost, man, it's going to be 90 years old here pretty soon, or it's almost over 90 years old. I'm not good at math. But I I, uh, I was doing an article about Pittman Roberts, and I thought, man, you know, I'm learning so much through writing this article that I didn't already know. And through doing that, I realized most hunters probably don't know what I'm finding out now. That's one of the reasons I'm writing the article, of course, but also I want to see if I can confirm this, this suspicion I have. So I went to a hundred hunters that I knew um, through the industry and otherwise and asked them, what is Pittman Robertson? What is the wildlife restoration? Act? Tell me all about it. 97 of them didn't have any idea what it was at all. <laughs> and these weren't people that were just casual hunters. These were people I worked with. And, and, and so that and Pittman Robertson and, and legislation like it is the bedrock of our American system of conservation funding and conservation funding abroad. So I say all that to say, we don't, when you, in, in this country, at the very least, when you buy a hunting license, it doesn't come with a pamphlet on our model of conservation, our system of conservation funding, the history, the, some of the pitfalls. It doesn't come with that. You don't get educated on that out of the box. And so I don't have any numbers to back this up, but I would, I would uh, imagine that, that only a small percentage of the hunters existing on this continent today can really understand and articulate what, what these things mean. And I really think that that's what we have to engender. And, and there's, you can go talk about it on social media, talk about it on your podcast, do that. Certainly that's important. But doing it on a personal level, if you were to teach somebody to hunt or mentor them, include these things, include these talking points in that mentorship, include these talking points um, at the dinner table or when you're explaining hunting to somebody. Like those efforts are scalable if we if everybody takes part in them. Um, it's not a simple fix, but it's, it's more people need to understand this stuff, and it's a it's a huge part of of what we do. I remember I went on and back in November, went on Joe Rogan's podcast and talked about Pittman Robertson. And I got thousands of emails from people that are like, I can't believe this exists. And nobody knows duck stamp. Can't believe this exists. And I had no idea. Um, 
So that's, that's just a huge part of it. If the hunting population doesn't understand what's actually, what they're a part playing part in, how can we expect anyone outside of, of that participant group to, to have the same knowledge? Uh, I think that's one. And then the other one, of course, is to join organizations that are, that are speaking up about this. Uh, howl.org is, is recently come on the scene and they have, Every time a, a wildlife issue comes up on a state level, they have an easy way for you to fill out a form and email your uh, your representative. Uh, like I said, Sportsman Alliance does the same thing. Uh, BHA, Backer Trainers and Anglers, also does that. R- you, you can join RMEF and Wild Sheep and be a part of those active parts of those communities on the local level and engender those things in your community. Just you know, be a part of of those. There's no elixir. There's no panacea. There's nothing that we can do that you can do tomorrow to solve the problem. But, you know, being active in all the things I mentioned is going to help. It's going to change the tide slowly and at least um, allow us to to be in the popular conversation, to be a part, a bigger part of the popular conversation around wildlife. Because in this country, if you read the New York Times, if you read some of the larger publications in this that we have they're not whenever they're talking about wildlife they're talking about wolves in yellowstone they're talking about the lady recently who shot a a husky and thought it was a wolf that's what they're talking about they're not running op-eds on Pittman robertson last i checked and if they are it's usually attacking them. um so so that's just that's just our challenge that's our generational challenge to, to continue what's been happening for the last 90 some years yeah, well said, and you know, I'll just touch briefly on this, and then we'll we'll segue. But um, you know, that bill this summer, uh, that Andrew Clyde bill that went to the House regarding Pittman Robertson and repealing it, basically, um, you know, that that that's pretty frightening when we start looking at things like that. And um, I'm not exactly sure where that's sitting right now. I don't think um, it, it didn't look like it was going to go anywhere. But you know, they take that away, it takes away our argument for why hunting exists, right? So it's uh, you know. Uh, or one of our strong arguments. That's one thing we just talked about and, and, you know, another threat to our system, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a huge one. Um, it really is. It, I, it go deeply into representative Clyde, representative Clyde, the huge, um, is out of Georgia and he is a huge proponent of second amendment. He owns a gun store, one of the biggest gun stores on the East coast. And he's a second amendment, second amendment evangelist, really. And his argument is that through Pittman-Robertson, which levies an excise tax on the manufactured cost of goods um, that then gets put into a wildlife restoration account managed by the IRS and the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and others, and then gets sold out to the states and goes back into conservation programs, hunting education, and other things. He's arguing that that tax itself is unconstitutional because you're taxing in America an, a constitutional right, which is the right to bear arms. So you're levying a tax against the constitutional right. That's his argument. He also argues that the funding uh, for Pittman-Robertson goes up and down based on how many the guns and ammo sales and, and hunting participation. It's, it's an unstable environment. So if you were to um, be a state agency and you rely on $20 million a year from uh, to run your programs and the next year you get $18 million, and the next year you get fifteen. That's going to hurt you. Um, that's going to hurt your funding sources. And in both of those ways, I, I can't say that I totally disagree with the guy. I feel like he's coming at it from uh, a decent perspective. He's not an evil politician trying to take your rights or any, any kind of 
crap like that. But but what he's what he's missing, and he's missing it so bad. I mean, he's he was just on a podcast with Donald Trump Jr. talking about this issue, and they both missed it by a mile. They missed it so bad. I'm going to do a podcast this week about how bad they missed it because <laughs> I just couldn't. I just couldn't take it. I was like, oh, these, they missed this idea of our user pays public benefit system because what they're proposing is to take a user a user tax like a tax on the user that goes back to to fund something that the entire public benefits from the entanglement of our positioning within the financial and economic incentives to maintain our wildlife population the values of the hunting population the shooting population are intertwined now you can't you can't have one without the other as long as this tax exists we want wildlife, we want hunting, we want shooting. It's all intertwined in our user pays public benefit system. If we eliminate that, we decouple those two values. So you can't count on what they want to count on, which is the, the uh, federal lease money from oil and gas leases to fund it. It would be a more stable funding. They're right. But what it would do, how can you rely on the constituency of federal oil and gas leases, the people that care about that, to fund conservation? They have no stake in the game. They have zero stake in what happens to those wildlife. So somebody would be paying for our wildlife conservation who could care less about it, mm-hmm. who have no stake in the game. They're not a user of it. And so, so thus they don't understand the value of it at all. Um, and that's what he, they would be removing with this bill. Representative Clyde misses this I mean, by many, many miles when he talks about this. He misses this on purpose, and he talks about it uh, flippantly. He talks about it like it's not a big deal um, and, and just kind of brushes it away. As hunters really want to have a stake in the game, they don't want to let anybody else make any decisions. They want to have a seat at the table. That's what he says. He misses that it's a bedrock of how our system actually functions and why it works. Uh, and so he's, he's so dead wrong about that. Um, but he's not, you know, I don't think he's ill-intentioned. I think he's trying, trying to benefit uh, the constitutional right of, of having a firearm, but he's he's missing it, and he's missing it to by a wide margin. And you know, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, BHA, name an organization they have opposed this. You know, and hopefully for that reason. Yeah, complex issue and. Uh we could talk about that for the next three hours, but we'll, we'll tune into the next podcast to Woodside and we'll, we'll catch up on it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so on that note, um, let's just talk a little bit about, uh, what's new in your platform, what's going on hunt common, what's going on in the podcast just, and, and what's, what's coming up. What can we look forward to from, uh, the Ben O'Brien? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm trying to, you know, go out on my own, <laughs> be an independent. I've been a corporate media guy forever. Um, working for brands and different things like that. So I really, I've been in this long enough that I feel pretty confident that I can do it on my own. I can build something of, of that was mine and that, that didn't really have any um, significant third party pressure to say one thing or not the other, which certainly exists in the corporate world. Uh, there's no getting around it. So that, that's the, the coolest thing about what I'm doing currently. But yeah, we have, we have Woodside media and, and the Woodside podcast, which is really just my way of, of taking my journalistic uh, ambitions and applying them to our world, uh, hunting 
outdoor conservation world and finding people that are interesting and finding issues that are important and breaking those things down and trying to bring um, a centrist, objective approach to it as best I can. I'm certainly biased against hunting, so I've got to admit that. I'm always I'm always here to, to argue for that and, and campaign for that. But that's really my goal there is to, to be you know, somebody who people can rely on if they want to hear both sides, if they want to hear the culture war kind of broken down and, and understood and, and prioritized because we're all should be prioritizing wildlife and wildlife resources and wild places. And that's, that's a priority. Uh, when two people are arguing from, from opposite sides of our political spectrum, oftentimes we miss that. Oftentimes we focus on why the other person is wrong and not why what I'm saying benefits the resource. So we're going to endeavor to, to sort those things out in the future and, and, talk to people that are important you know have important insights there and we're also doing a bunch of kind of mini series shows that that really touch on things that we're passionate about so we did hunter and vegan which is a show of my buddy robert c jones um it's it's eight episodes of kind of breaking down a vegan versus an animal rights activist and an ethicist as he is he's a philosopher who went through and and kind of broke down our disagreements in eight different chapters it's about nine or 10 hours of, of listening. And we think it breaks down um, those two opposing viewpoints pretty well. And then we did uh, roost, which was the turkey hunting show and wallow and elk hunting show in the same fashion where we kind of break down A to Z elk hunting. We bring in a bunch of experts uh, for turkeys and elk and we break down these things and, and really like a primer to what you need to know to become an elk hunter or a turkey hunter. And we take it from a novice standpoint or from an intermediate hunter standpoint talk about it there and, and so that's yeah that's a lot I, I feel like it's now that i say it out loud i'm pretty busy man. <laughs> that in itself is a lot so that's that's going on we're putting out a couple podcasts a week and and cranking through a lot of these ideas and it feels good to be to be able to do those things and um work with a lot of cool people to achieve those things sam Soholt, my co-host for roost and my buddy sam lundgren former mediator colleague is my co-host for for Wallow, the Elk Hunting Podcast, and um, going to be bringing on a, a bunch of other folks that you probably know in the, in the future to help come and work with us and um, create content. So it's been, it's been fun to, it's only been about eight months. We built the studio I'm in right now, uh, Outdoor Class Studios in Bozeman, so I have a place to go and, and uh, do all these recordings. It's super, it's fancier than I've ever had. So um, it's, it's it's fun to to know that every decision you make, you live, live or die on 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 the content and the audience liking it and it, it being worth their while. Yeah, I would appreciate it, Ben. And just always appreciate your, your platform and, and your words. I've, like I said, I've been a listener for a long time and I'm always learning something every single time and no exception again here today. So super grateful for all you do and, um, and just your messaging. And, and I think that I can, I can honestly say from my perspective, no more, no one individual has influenced me more in terms of thinking about things differently around hunting and how we talk about it and how we look at it uh, than yourself. So I'm really grateful for that and, and always just enjoy what you're putting out there. Um, so I guess just to, to close off, uh, if people want to tune in, where do they, where's the best uh, thing to consume? Yeah, I know a simple Google search will do it, yeah. but uh, where do they need to head to? Yeah, I mean, I wrote up. First, I say thank you very much. That means a lot to me. Uh, yeah, I, I, I care a lot about it. So it's, it's easy to talk about, obviously. And I always warn people when they ask me, tell me about hunting. I'm like, how many hours do you have? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, we have, you know, Woodside, uh, media network now. Uh, that's 
sounds pretty cool to say. Uh, Woodside Media Network on wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, all that stuff. Wherever you listen, we have a network um, that includes the four podcasts that I mentioned. And Woodside comes out every Tuesday. And, um, you know, usually every Thursday we have a premium podcast that goes out. Um, and we have people that want to want to help us fund what we're doing and care enough about it. We have a premium subscription service that uh, gets you extra content, gets you some, some giveaways, and also helps uh, helps me and us do what we do. Um, and so, yeah, you can find it at woodside.supercast.com if you want to look at the premium side. And then, you know, you can just search Woodside Media or Woodside and, and you'll find it wherever it is you listen to podcasts. And, um, you know, we're feverishly working away on big plans for next year, including some video and uh, products that we'll be putting out. And you know, if I can get, if I can convince somebody, to let me write a book, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> awesome. uh, so a bunch of other things. So we have a bunch of ideas and, and exciting things coming up for next year. So um, still feel, it feels like I've been doing this for a long time, but it's only been roughly eight months since we started. So it's, a, it's been a fun ride thus far. Awesome, man. Well, I'm looking forward to more great stuff from you and congratulations on Woodside. It's uh much needed in our space and uh, looking forward to consuming all you're putting out there. So thank you again for your time today and uh, good luck in the field this fall. Well, thank you so much for what you do and, and look forward to talking uh, whenever you need me. Just holler. Appreciate you, man. Thank you.